So as we begin today, we are entering a new section of the book of Isaiah. Hence, we will be looking at a lot of outlines because I want to help first reorient us to where we've been, where we're going, reorient, reorient us to the whole book of Isaiah. And then also, starting this week, and I say this um, also acknowledging that I've already done this quite a bit, um, but starting this week especially, we are going to be looking at a few chapters at a time every week. So I will unfortunately, and I know this is weird to say from the pulpit, but I will unfortunately not be reading too much from the Bible as I'm talking. And and that sounds heretical, but it's because I'm trying to cover a lot of ground. So what I am trusting and hoping is that you are um, following along as I'm going. Feel free to be reading as I'm talking about it or read it throughout the week as a reminder um, and kind of using what what I've said and walked through as an outline to help you understand it. And it's also why we text out in the middle of the week so that hopefully you can kind of be reading in preparation if you at all have time. Um, but I do just want to acknowledge that. So as I am going today, I will be obviously looking and referring to the section. Um, it's obviously what I've been looking at all week to be able to talk about it. Um, but I will mostly just kind of walking us through what is happening in the text. And also because of that, I do want to give another quick plug that there is a Q&A at the end of this series. Um, so if there is stuff that you wanted to hear, but I didn't talk about it at all, or there's a specific verse or section that popped out to you that you'd love a greater in-depth look at, um, please let me know. I do have some of those in mind already. And um, as always, Caleb and I threaten that like, if we don't get enough questions, we will make our own questions. And I have had plenty that I haven't had time for throughout Isaiah. So however many questions I get, there will be a Q&A, but I, I do love hearing from you and hearing what questions that you have specifically that I could address. Um, but all I'd say first to reorient us to where we are and what happened to... Okay, it's up there, but it's not there. Would you mind being able to fix that? Thanks. Cool. So, um, be look backwards a little bit just to make sure I know where I am. So, um, first, the section we're looking at today is 40 to 44, um, but what I want to first do is... It's up there, perfect. Um, just reorient us to the whole book of Isaiah. Um, so, just a very brief, simplistic outline for the book of Isaiah is that the first five chapters um, are... Basically, an introduction and a backdrop, if you will. They're kind of like if you think of the theater production, like the the backdrop often has c- scenes and pictures that help you kind of orient where the events are happening. So that's what the first five chapters are. They help introduce the time period that Isaiah is ministering during. And a brief summary of it is that it's basically the failure of Judah and the seeming forfeiture of the promises. Like they've failed so much how are the promises going to be fulfilled is effectively the feeling that you have going into the book. And then the next chapter, you have um, the beginning of what is referred to as the book of the king, or another way of thinking about it is the promise. And a lot of commentators actually talk about this as 1 through 39, but it's a little complicated because 1 through 5 is introduction, 6 is Isaiah's call and commission to ministry, so really more properly 7 to 39 is the book of the king or the promise. And this is um, basically a promise that the... Uh, a true king of David will come to fulfill what all the other Davidic kings in, the, in David's line have failed to do. And then after that, you have 40 to 55, which is what we're beginning today, which is the answer to this problem, or what's also called the book of the servant. And in, in this section, we see that the sin of the people, the real problem, is borne by a sin-bearing servant. And then you have the last section, which is 55 to 60, or sorry, 56 to 66, which is the end or the book of the conqueror. And this is a call to live in obedience and righteousness while waiting for the final victory. 
So you have three different books, effectively, in the book of Isaiah. You have the book of the king, which is 1 through 39, kind of, and then the book of the servant, and then the book of the conqueror. And last week, we finished the book of the king, and we are beginning this week to look at the book of the servant. And um, just by way of very brief review, um, the first book, the book of the king, again, began in chapter 7, um, really after those first five chapters introduction and then the call of Isaiah. And chapter 7 opened this book, if you will, of the king with Ahaz and his failure of looking to Assyria rather than trusting to God, trusting in God. That was Isaiah's call and his confrontation to Ahaz is who are you going to trust? And Ahaz unfortunately chose Assyria. And then we also saw at this time that, like, this was honestly kind of a bit expected because if you read about Ahaz throughout the rest of the Bible, you realize that he was characterized by not choosing God. So the beginning of the book of the king wasn't too big of a surprise, but then the book of the king works through the life of Ahaz and we go all the way through to the life of Hezekiah. And then what we realize is that this book of the king also closes with a failure that is a bit more surprising. Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, who by and large is characterized by doing what is right and choosing God and leading reforms in the country, he also fails by looking to Babylon rather than God. Chapter 39 purposefully closes the book of the kings, or sorry, the book of the king with the failure of the line of David. The book of the king closes with the failure of the king. And it also closes with a promise of exile to Babylon and a promise that some of Hezekiah's sons would be taken into exile and become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And this threat to the line of David and to the promise that um, the line of David will have a descendant who sits on the throne forever and fulfills all these promises, this book of the king ends with a threat to these promises. And this threat is made explicit. If you look at 39 verse 7, just before we're going to begin our text today in 41, if you look at 39 7, Isaiah's message to Hezekiah is that some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, it kind of reminds me of like Abraham, of God talking to Abraham, like making it super explicit that it's like, no, it's you and Sarai. Uh, but here it's like three times repeated, like your own sons will be taken away and they shall become eunuchs, which means that they are not able to have sons. So you have this explicitly clear, dire threat to the promises. But also notice in that wording, some of your sons. There is still hope. Even in this explicit threat, there is still hope. The book of the king then, which contains the promise of a future perfect son of David, scattered throughout these chapters, we see this promise again and again, ends with a grave threat to these very promises, but a little bit of hope. So how in light of this threat will these promises be fulfilled? This is the question that the book of the servant, the next section, has to answer. And it does so by doing more than answering just the question of the Babylonian exile, for that is not truly the greatest threat to these promises. The unfaithfulness, the rebellion, the sin of the people is the greatest threat. And these chapters give an answer to the exile, but they also give the answer that is needed even more, redemption from sin. So as we go into this next section here, I want to first briefly give an outline of the entire book of the servant, and that is chapters 40 through 55. And as we look at this book, and all of these sections will each be one sermon, 
Um, the first section for today is 40 verse 1 through 44 verse 23, and this is the promise, promises and the plans of God. Basically, again, you have this threat to the promises, and you have this promised exile into Babylon. But that's not even the greatest problem. We see that the greatest problem again and again is pointed out to be the sin and rebellion of the people. So in these opening chapters, we see the promises and the plans of God to deal with both of these of these problems. And then in the second section, you have the first act of deliverance. So the first solution, effectively, deliverance from exile. And then in the third section, in the final section, you have the second act of deliverance, which is deliverance from sin. So it's a very organized section. And honestly, part of the reason that I have the um, outlines up as I'm going, and I will probably these next couple weeks as well, is just to show the beauty of the arrangement of the book of Isaiah. Um, but today's section we'll be looking at is 40 verse 1 through 44 verse 23. And in this section... You have your two main points, each with two minor points. So Isaiah did this nicely for me, did my outline for me. Um, so you have the promises of God in the first two chapters. Um, then that, that is broken up into the comfort for God's people and then hope for the world. And then in the second section, you have the plans of God, broken up into redemption from bondage and redemption from sin. So you're going to get two problems to deal with. So the plans of God, you have to, you're going to have two separate plans to deal with the two separate problems. And the second half, by the way, the plans of God, I will be going a bit more quickly through that section um, because if you notice back in the outline of the whole book, that is literally the purpose of the following two sections is dealing with those plans. So I will be dealing mostly with, um, sorry, dealing mostly, mostly with the promises of God and then I will be addressing the plans of God, but we'll go through that a bit more briefly. And then as we, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself there. As we go into chapter 40 here, and as we enter this text, and as we begin the book of the servant, we need to realize that we are leaving the events of Isaiah's day. And we are more than likely leaving and switching to a different intended audience. Chapters 1 through, 9, 1 through 39 cover his call to ministry, his continued pleas to Ahaz and Hezekiah to trust God, and all the historical events of his lifetime that are contained in the book of Isaiah. The prophecies, the oracles, and the woes that we worked through in all of those previous chapters, they were spoken to the people of their time, of Isaiah's time, in their circumstances, to call them to trust God now. They did look to the future, but all of those future promises and prophecies and oracles and woes were all grounded in and shown and proved by more near-term prophecies, a lot of times in his lifetime or their lifetime. This is going to change in 40 and beyond. We're going to be looking to the return from exile. So the thing that was hinted at at the end of 39, this exile into Babylon, we're now looking ahead to the return from exile, which happens well beyond Isaiah's time. And we also are going to look to the work of the servant, and we'll find out who that is as we keep going, and then also to the end of the world. These chapters are written as if to the future people of God in exile to promise them deliverance from bondage, both their bondage of exile and also their heart bondage of sin. So now, if you imagine kind of as far as other, the arrangement of this book and when Isaiah is talking, now sometime after 701, so after the siege of Jerusalem that we talked about last week, now sometime after 701, he is arranging his book and purposely puts 38 and 39, the end of the previous section that we just read, he purposely put them out of chronolo chronological order to show that Hezekiah is not the one that the people are waiting for or should be putting their trust in. What's ironic is that Hezekiah might be still on the throne while he's arranging this. And he's even then showing that Hezekiah is not the one. And then he, 
Isaiah, through God's eyes, is looking to the future and pleading to future Israel, just like he pleaded with the people of his own day, put your trust in God. He starts this plea with a series of promises and guarantees in our chapters for today, chapters 40 through 44. And in this section, in this opening section, it's going to be briefly introduced um, uh, as a plan of God to deliver his people from bondage and sin. And then it's also going to contain a series of voices and guarantees that show the certainty that this plan will come to pass. As we look first to the first section for today, the first section is 40 verse 1 through 41 verse 20. And this is comfort for God's people. As he looks to these future people, he meets them where they are in their exile. So as you read the opening of these chapters, you read 40 verse 1. Imagine that this is being spoken to a group of people in exile, having suffered for a long time and speaking to them in their moment of need. And he begins with comfort, comfort my people. So he looks to these future people, he meets them where they are, and he begins this, ma- this message with comfort and says, Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, or speak to her heart, is the wording there. Cry to her that her warfare or her hardship, her exile, is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. We're going to explain each of those things a little bit more briefly here. But these two verses are a summary and an introduction of what is going to follow in all of chapters 40 through 45. There are two beautiful verses of introduction and summary. This comfort, comfort, it isn't shown too well in the English here because it's kind of hard to do, but it is a pair of plural verbs that introduces three voices that are going to proclaim this message of comfort. And these are seen in 3 through 11. Verse 3, verse 6, and verse 9 are the introduction to the three different voices. These voices and the content of 40 through 45 will speak tenderly or speak to the heart of Jerusalem, of God's people. And the content of this comfort is summarized beautifully in the three that statements of verse 2. That her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double from all her sins. The first one, that her warfare, that her hardship, that her exile is over. Again, God is meeting the people where they are. And then the second one, that her iniquity is pardoned. This goes even beyond the physical problem and goes to the spiritual problem. So that her iniquity, that her sin is pardoned. And then that she has received from the Lord's hand double. And this word is kind of confusing because it's like, okay, God has given the people more than they deserve, a harsher punishment than they deserve for sin. Is that what's meant here? This this Hebrew word is actually kind of hard to define. It's only used actually one other time in the Bible. But what seems to be the case, and it's kind of hard to do in English because you have to have like a really big phrase in there to explain what's going on. But the 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 name, or sorry, the word double means the double or like the match, the equivalent which is interesting because even in English you read about that and it's like, okay, well, does that mean like one for one or does that mean like the the companion to, the solution to? And I think actually both words are intended here because what this means is that God has given the matching punishment but then also giving the matching solution. He has provided the payment for her sins. So in other words, this beginning here is comfort my people. 
says the Lord. Tell them that I will end this exile. I will solve also their deeper problem, their sin. And also from my hand came their punishment, but from my hand will also come the payment and the pardon for their sin. From my hand. Remember this my hand phrase that we have read so many times in Isaiah? It so often accompanies judgment, but also accompanies redemption. And you have both here. The punishment has come from, from the Lord, but also the payment will come from the Lord. And we'll get there as we work through these chapters what that means. But in response to this call to give comfort in these opening verses, three voices cry out. And again, these voices are seen in three, six, and nine. They're the three different voices. In three through five, you have a voice that cries out that a way will be prepared and leveled for God in the wilderness. The valleys will be lifted, the mountains lowered, and the uneven ground smoothed. In other words, a way will be straight, smooth, and obvious for God's glory to be revealed. God will act, and his glory will be revealed for the world to see. What is actually interesting is that this phrasing here matches a Babylonian hymn for a festive parade route for their God. So it's actually a borrowing of Babylonian language to say, no, that's actually our God that will be paraded around and his glory will be seen, not the glory of your gods. And then you look in six through eight, the next voice. This next voice cries that the word of our God will stand forever, as you see at the end of this voice's call in verse eight. This voice says, all flesh is as grass and flowers that wither and fade at the breath of the Lord, but his word stands forever. In other words, what this voice is saying that no one, no man, no king, no army, no empire, nothing can stop God's word, God's promises from coming true. What a comfort for, for people who are in exile to what is seen as the most powerful empire of the world at that day. That God says, my word will stand. Nobody can stop me. And then in 9 through 11, you have the third voice, which um, you probably, at least the ESV does, but a lot of other versions are going to do it as well. There's probably a 1 and a 2 after the O Zion, Herald of Good News, and O Jerusalem, Herald of Good News. You should actually probably flip that and say, Herald of Good News to Zion and Herald of Good News to Jerusalem, because this is the third voice that is crying out. This voice cries, Behold our God. Hey, we sang that. <laughs> this voice cries, Behold our God. He comes with might and a strong arm with his reward and his recompense. And you read those opening verses. Behold, our God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward and his recompense before him. And you're like, oh, that's scary. But then you read 11. How is he coming? What is he coming to do? What is he coming in might to do with his strong arm? He is coming to tend his flock like a shepherd. I did a whole sermon series on the good shepherd and how we see that imagery develop throughout the Bible. So I'm not going to spend time here to rehash that, but it is a beautiful image. He uses his might to tend tenderly his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. In other words, he will use his might and strength to tenderly gather his flock, gather his lambs, and gently carry and lead those who need help. This language, especially of the third voice, is meant to picture a conquering, victorious God arriving on a road paved for him, like we saw in 3 through 5, this God that's being paraded about and his glory is being shown. And in his glory and in his, as you read and hear this third voice, his reward and his recompense, his glorious victory that has brought a reward, his winnings are his flock that he tenderly cares for. That is what he has brought victory to accomplish. 
His winnings are the flock that he has tenderly gathered to himself. In other words, his winnings is a new exodus. The exodus theme is all over Isaiah. I don't have time to develop it every time, but I will be pointing out as we go through here, especially in 40 to 55, there is so much exodus language that is happening. But then the promises of these three voices are doubly guaranteed before being echoed a few verses later by three pictures. So first we see the double of the guarantee. And this is in 40, um, the first guarantee we see is in 40 verse 12 through 31. And this is the guarantee of the promises of God by the fact that he is the creator. So he can guarantee his promises. In a section that sounds like God's answer to Job, the hearer is asked questions like, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And who has directed the spirit of the Lord? And in whom did he consult? All of these being implied, no one. No one consulted God. No one else can do what he does or measure things like he does. No one else has the knowledge or the power that he does. God is declared throughout this section to be all-powerful, as you see in verse 12, all-wise, we see in 13 to 14, completely dominant over the nations, as you see in 15 through 17. He is declared to be incomparable and the only God, as you see in verses 18 to 20. He is declared to be the king of kings who sits above the earth, and you see this in 21 to 24. He, as the creator, knows, names, and manages even all the stars that we can't even possibly count, even with the instruments we have today. We see this in 26 to 27. So, as we go into the next couple verses leading out, um, starting in 28, or sorry, starting in 27, you see, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden? I think you should read this as, O people, O people of this God, yeah, this God that I just described as all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, managing everything. Why do you say of this God that your way is hidden, that he does not see you in exile, and that your right is disregarded, or that he will not bring and is not concerned about justice? Haven't you heard in 28? Have you not heard? He is the everlasting God and creator of all. He never grows weary, and his understanding is far beyond our comprehension. In other, or at the end of 28, there, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives of his might to the faint, and those who need help is what we read in the next couple of verses. Young men grow weary, but those who wait on the Lord, or the word there is those who hope or patiently wait or trustfully rest in, those who wait on the Lord are given his strength, is what we see in 28 to 31. So in other words, God sees and knows and will help. This all-powerful, all-wise God who manages everything, he sees you and he knows and he wants to help. So don't look to human help and strength that fails, is what's being said here, but look to God. Trust in him. In this language that we see here in 31, this beautiful verse, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. What's interesting is this beautiful language actually comes and is seated in Exodus. Exodus 19.4 is where we get this wings like eagles and how God brought them out of Egypt on wings like eagles and then provided for them in the desert. That's actually the imagery here, run and not be weary, walk and not faint, as God provided for his people and sustained them in the desert. This is new Exodus language. And then the second guarantee 
that we have of the promises is seen in 41, 1 through 7. And this is, the promises of God are guaranteed because he is the ruler of the world. This is basically actually just keying on, on one specific aspect of all the things that were just talked about. But we see this in the first seven verses. Basically what's happening in these verses is a quick court case is called to determine who is the ruler of the world. So God calls all nations we see in one, listen to me in silence, O coastlands, let the peoples renew your strength, let them approach, let them speak, let them together draw near for judgment. He is calling all nations to strengthen themselves, to gather, to listen in silence. And he then asks them, who is the one in the next few verses? Who is the one that stirred up the one from the east? And this is purposely ambiguous because think about all that God has said he has done and directed. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, just the list goes on. The one from the east, who empowered him and who directed him? Who has performed this and who has called or known and declared all the generations from the beginning? And then he gives the answer in four. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands we see in five, the coastlands or the nations see this and they tremble. And then what we see in the next couple verses them doing, they band together, they form idols to worship and they strengthen themselves, even declaring that these idols, they declare it is good. You see in the middle of seven and saying of the soldering, it is good. Hey, that's creation language. They're trying to recreate. They're trying to make their own God. They say it is good. And then they strengthen them with nails. You read at the end there, they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. They're trying to make a rock, what God calls of himself, that I am the rock. I am unmovable. I do not change. My promises will come true. They're trying to make their own rock. But God, remember who in four is, is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is greater than a God that must be held with nails to be unchangeable. He is the true rock. So we see that this, these promises of God, these promises of comfort are guaranteed by the fact that he is the creator and he is the ruler. And then finally, we see that the three voices of consolation are matched and echoed at the end of this section by three pictures of consolation. So an echo of the voices that were given in 3 to 11, we now have three pictures of consolation given in 41, 8 through 20. And these pictures also echo and expand beautifully 40 verse 31, which again says, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Every verse of that is picked up and expanded in these pictures here. What, how they do that is in 8 through 13 of chapter 41, we read that God will give victory to his servant Israel. He has not cast his servant off, we read, but he will strengthen him or renew his strength and uphold him with his right hand. This is an expansion of the, the Lord shall renew their strength of 31, of 40, 31. And then in 14 through 16 of chapter 41 here, you see, fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you and declares the Lord your redeemer. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge. The worm of Jacob will become a threshing sledge that removes all obstacles with the help of the Lord. This is similar and just kind of a different picture. In 4031, you saw the given wings like eagles. So basically a transformation happened. And here you have a transformation from worm to threshing sledge. And then in 17 through 20, the third picture, you see the poor and needy seeking water. You have desert imagery here. Basically the thirsty in the desert will be given water and shade. And this is an echo and an expansion of 
the end of 4031, which says, They shall run and not be weary, walk and not faint. This is provision for those who are needy and weary. So we see there that the three voices of comfort have been echoed by three pictures of comfort. What is interesting, as you follow in the specific wording of everything that we just went over, all of these promises and guarantees, these pictures that we have seen, we've seen a lot of Jacob, Israel, we've seen a lot of Israel imagery, and they so far seem to focus on just Israel. But what about all the promises to the nations and how God said he will one day have a people for himself from all nations? He will have a people, we've read many times, from Assyria to Egypt. He's basically using different nations to represent the fact that I will have a people from myself, for myself, from all nations. He says he will have one people that worship that worships God. So what about all these promises? This is the question that transitions us into the next section, which is the hope for the world. And we see this in 41 verse 21 through 42, 17. Remember all those idols? that the world made in the trembling back in 40 verses 5 through 7? Well, now in 41, 21, they are called back to court. We see, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them, which is them and them. It's very broad, but it's basically let the nations bring their gods. So it's basically calling back of the court. And in this wording we see of these verses here, that the king of Jacob or Israel, calls all peoples to bring their idols for a test. And what we see going on in the next few verses, basically the test is, let them tell the former things, or declare things to come. We read in 23 here, tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's do good or do harm. And in that read, basically like he's like, tell us the things that have happened. Tell us the, thing that have, the things that are to come. Do good or do bad. Like he's Basically, it's changing to do something to show us that you are gods is the challenge. It started off grand and lofty, prophesied, but now it's even just do something to tell us that you are gods. But they are nothing. As we read in 24, behold, you are nothing, and and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. The idols are nothing. Their work is less than nothing, and those who choose them are condemned. In 25 to 29, God then declares or answers the case and declares his ability to do what they cannot. In these verses, we see that he knows and declares the future. Among the gods, he says, there is no knowledge and no counselor. They are a delusion or empty wind. And then as we get into 41, verse 24 here, the question hanging in the air is, is there then no hope for the nations? But there is a continuing, there is a hinge word here that shows that the next section answers this question. For in 41.24, you said, you saw behold, and then in 20, sorry, 41.29, we see behold, this word here is echoing throughout this court case. And then opening chapter 42, behold my servant whom I uphold. This is an answer to the hanging question in the air of what hope is there for the nations? Their gods, their idols are nothing, can do nothing, cannot save them. The only hope is God. So do the nations then have no hope from this God of Jacob? 
he answers that question in these next few verses as he says that my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. You see a focus on the nations in these next few verses. He will bring justice to them. And then in 42, 4, the coastlands wait for his law. We read that this servant will be given as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes of the blind and free the prisoners from their dungeons and from their darkness. The Lord, we see in 8 through 9, will do this. There is hope for the nations. There is hope for the world. In response to this, there is a call for a new song to be sung, starting in verse 10. A new song will be sung to the Lord from the ends of the earth, from even Gentile lands. You see the mention of Kedar and Selah, which are both places in Gentile territory. But this is where the song will be sung from. And we read, Let them give glory to the Lord, for he fights for them. We see in 12 to 13, Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts, and he shows himself mighty against his foes. Hey, that's, that's language that sounds a lot like what he just said he would do for his people. He's now doing the same thing for the nations. And we read in these verses, and starting in 14, for a long time I have held my peace. And as he goes on here, we see effectively what's being said is that for a long time he has been silent to them. Think of the Old Testament and how his word, his covenant, his law was given to his people, to the nation of Israel. He says, for a long time I have been silent to them, but now he cries out and acts on their behalf. And as you read verses 15 to 16, I will lay waste mountain and hills and dry up all the vegetation. I will turn rivers to islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know and paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light and rough places into level ground. These are the things that I do and I do not forsake them. That is almost verbatim from the comforts and consolation that had just been given to Jacob, to Israel, now to the nations. The Lord is the creator and Lord of all, and he will have a people for himself from all peoples, is what is being said. The act of deliverance he provides for his people, he will provide for the world as well. And then as we continue through these chapters, we see the plans of God in a beautifully balanced arrangement here. You see the plans of God, first the redemption from bondage and then the redemption from sin, and they're each matched with four subsections. You basically have the problem, and then the solution, sure promises of the solution, and then a summary of the redemption that will happen. And again, this is the plans of God that are going to be expanded in the next two sections. Next week, we're going to be looking at the deliverance from exile, and then the week after that, the deliverance from sin. So I will go through these a bit more briefly, but in a beautiful transition into this section, as we think of what he had just said to the nations, to the coastlands, to the peoples of the world, he said that he will open their eyes, he will open their ears. And then as we introduce this next section here, this plans of God, hear you deaf and look you blind. These are both plurals, I think still speaking to the nations, that you may see. And then we have a switch to a singular. Who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I sent? Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? In a beautiful transition into this next section, God calls the deaf of the world and the blind of the world to look and to see. But what they look and see is a deaf 
and blind servant. I think this was referring to national Israel at the time. How will this deaf and blind servant become the servant that we just read about at the beginning of the chapter? We just read that this servant will bring justice to the nations and that the coastlands wait for his law. So how does this servant become that servant? This is the next the, the question that opens up this section of the plans of God. And as we look and as we go into the first part of it, which is the redemption from bondage, we see first the problem in verses 18 to 25 of chapter 42. And the problem is that Israel was God's servant, his messenger, his dedicated one, but they are deaf, blind, plundered, trapped, given over to judgment. You see all of these adjectives here labeled against his people. And the judgment, referring to this, this trapment here, this is the, the exile language. And then we see worst of all, at the end of this section here in verse 25. So he poured out on him, on Israel, the heat of his anger and the might of battle. He set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. So what is the solution? We see this in the first seven verses of chapter 43. Even to this Israel, God says, starting in 1 of 43. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, remember that fire that was just mentioned all around them? When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. So what God is saying to his people is, fear not, for I have redeemed you. This fire will not totally consume you, for I am still your God, and I will bring you home. He will end this exile. And then as we see in the the next verses of verses 8 through 13 of chapter 43, we see sure promises that this will happen. And one thing I want to point out, another parallelism here, is that in the sure promises section, of the release, the redemption from bondage and the redemption from sin, you have an attack against the idols here that is catered actually to fit its context. So in here, you have a context of freedom from exile. And who can they trust to do that? And in 8 through 13, what is effectively happening is that to remind his people to trust in him alone, he reconvenes the court of nations. This court theme is constant throughout these chapters. He reconvenes the court of nations that he had called before and calls also Israel to be his witness. You see in 10, you are my witnesses, declare the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. So he calls Israel to be his witnesses, but notice that he does all the talking. He calls a witness, but the witness doesn't actually speak. It is God who witnesses for himself. He does all the talking. He he reminds them that the gods cannot prophesy, but he can, is what we see in these verses. We see his word will come true just as it always has. He will act, as we read in 10, so that they will know and believe and witness of him that he alone can deliver. And then we see in the final section of this redemption portion, we see in 43 verses 14, to 21. See, thus, starting in 14, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I sent to Babylon to bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. In other words, the things they take their pride in, I will attack them even there and will conquer them. 
I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Remember how these promises were guaranteed by him being the creator and him being the ruler of all? Of all? Yeah, both of those guarantees just came back right here in those verses. So in this redemption that he promises and has guaranteed, these, this redemption in 14 to 21 of 43, he says this act he will do, this deliverance, and it is spelled out in these verses, he will bring down Babylon. And then in 18 to 21, especially in verse 19, as we read, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Again, this repetition of this new exodus that he will provide. And then as we go into the final section here, which is the redemption from sin, we start in verse 43, verse, or sorry, chapter 43, verse 22. And remember that this comes right out of all these grand promises and guarantee of redemption and release and being brought home from exile. And what is the next verse, though, after all that? Yet, yet, you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. We see the problem, the deeper problem. The deeper problem than their physical problem is their spiritual problem. It says, yet you did not call on me, You've been weary of me. In other words, despite everything I have done and will do for you, despite how I have proven myself again and again and again, you are weary of me. And we read in the next few verses that they have not honored him with their sacrifices. And you read that and you're like, well, they were doing the sacrifices. But remember what was talked about in chapter 1? You're doing the sacrifices, but you're not honoring me with your heart. Your sacrifices are empty and worthless because your religion has become empty with no heart is what's being said here. And what's interesting in the wording here, in 23, I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me. Look at, look at the flip there. In 23, I have not burdened you with these offerings. Remember, these, these offerings weren't meant to be a burden. This was meant to be simply a reflection of your heart. But it has become flipped and it says, but you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities. Remember in chapter one, how God had gotten to the point where he called their worship a trampling of his courts and said simply, get out. If this is the worship you're doing, get out. Change your heart. Learn to actually worship me and love me and have my heart. And then you can come back and do these motions that you're doing. So the deeper problem, the much deeper problem, is their heart that needs to change. Then we see the solution in 43, verses 25 to 44, verse 5. We see that this same God that they had burdened and wearied will blot out their transgressions, their sin, for his own sake. See, in 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. In 26 to 28, he quickly brings them. It's no longer the nations that are brought to court, but his people brought to court. He brings them to court and very quickly declares them guilty and worthy of judgment. We see in 28, Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. This 
announcement of judgment, though, is amazingly followed immediately in 44.1. But now, here, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour out on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. We see the same God who they have burdened and wearied will blot out their transgressions and he calls them to fear not for he has chosen them and one day he will pour out his spirit on them to give them new life and help them to be what they have failed to be all along, which is holy, dedicated to him. And then we see this solution guaranteed by sure promises again against the idols. And this is where your Bible's probably switched to paragraph format. And you have a long section against the folly of the idols is how the ESV has a header for it. God then, and now in these verses, as their redeemer promises that he will do this. He is the first and the last, as we read about earlier. There is no other God who can thwart his plan. And what is happening effectively in all these verses is he's challenging any other God to proclaim and lay out what is to become. And then without even pausing, because he knows there is no answer, he says again, fear not. Because there is no other God. He alone is the rock who can be trusted. Remember how the nations were trying to scramble together to create an idol and nail it down so that it cannot be moved and that it will be trustworthy? He ends this attack against the gods by saying that he alone is a rock. He alone is the one that they can trust in. And what's going on in these verses is that is in 9 through 20, he gives a lengthy explanation of the foolishness and the emptiness of the idols. They are objects made by people. You read about the people going out and then doing something with some of the wood and then making the idol with the other part of the wood. Basically, this is an explanation of the foolishness and emptiness of the idols. They are objects made by people who then ask the objects that they have made to save them. And then 20 summarizes it very well when it says um, in verse 20, it says, he feeds on ashes. So he, being the one that looks to the idol, feeds on ashes. In other words, he's looking for sustenance and for comfort and for strength from ashes. He feeds on ashes. He has a deluded heart that has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or realize or say, is there not in my a lie? In my right hand. In other words, this person who looks to the idols feeds or strengthens himself on ashes or on nothing. He has a deluded heart that has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself. What's, what's being said is that these idols are mankind making a god for themselves and then trying to use their own creation that they just made, so effectively their own power to save themselves. The makers and the worshipers of the idols, notice, do all the work for the idol, and then ask their own work to save them, but it only enslaves them in the lie. This is the exact opposite of what we have read so many times about the Lord, the true God, who does all the work for his people, 
Remember how he did all the work for his vineyard? It's the exact opposite of what we had just read here about how the people did all the work for their idols. God did all the work for his vineyard. He is able to save by the redemption that he will provide and he frees them. What he has promised is freedom from bondage because the end of idolatry is slavery, but he has promised to his people freedom from bondage. He has promised freedom from the bondage of both physical and spiritual enslavement. What's also interesting is that you read here at the end in 20, the person who looks at the idols, he cannot deliver himself. Is there not a lie in my right hand? Think of how many times already God's own people had been accused of finding security in a lie. One of the many examples of it was the alliance they had looked to Egypt for. And Isaiah just straight up called it an allegiance with death and an allegiance with falsehood and allegiance with a lie. His own people had done what is being said here of what those who look to idols have done. And then we read in the, in the redemption section, this final section here, in a beautiful transition into the second statement of redemption, God says, starting in 21, remember these things. So what, what he just said, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. Remember how we just read that the people who served idols formed the idols? Well, God flips that and said, I formed you. And what's also interesting here is he does pick up on the enslavement language. He says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant, or another word for slave. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. The redemption promised in this beautiful passage is basically summarized by him saying, remember that I have formed you, not the other way around like the idols. You are my servant or my slave. So you are at face value like those who have enslaved themselves to idols. But the fate, your fate, is much, much different and much greater than those who have enslaved themselves to idols. The fate of and the promise to the slaves of God is infinitely better than the fate of and the promise to the slaves of the idols. For he says, O Israel, you will not be forsaken. I have blotted out your transgressions, and like a cloud and your sins like a mist, return to me, for I have redeemed you. So we may be his slaves, but slaves to whom he has promised redemption, forgiveness, and life. The exact opposite of what we read of the fate of those who looked to the idols and were enslaved by them. And this section then closes appropriately, just like Isaiah does so many times, with a song of loud praise sung. And it is sung in the past tense, starting in 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. They are sung in the past tense to show the certainty of the redemption both redemptions that is to come. Over the next two weeks, we will see these two acts of redemption or the deliverance spelled out. We will see first in the act of deliverance from bondage, and then we will see it in the act of deliverance from sin. We will also see a transition in the identity of the servant. Because remember, there was that question, how does that servant 
sorry, how does this servant, the deaf and blind servant, become that servant that frees all of the people? We're going to see a transition in the identity of the servant. But as we end today, I want to appropriately, because this is a section of comfort of the plans and promises of God, I want to look and see two comforts from what we have just read. First, God sees and knows both our physical and our spiritual struggles and longs to help us with both. Yet there is also a challenge I see even in this comfort. Because what he has declared repeatedly is that our spiritual need is our greatest. And yet this is often the one that we pray for the least, especially when we are in difficulties. And I don't hear me as saying that God doesn't want you to pray for your physical needs, he, that he doesn't want to help you with your physical needs, but he also wants to meet you where your heart is in those needs and help you there as well. And what is a challenge to me is how often we go through challenges in our life and pray for escape and freedom and release from those challenges, but don't ask and look at and evaluate what is going on in our heart during those times. And ask God to help us in how we respond to those times and be a light to those around us. The second comfort that I see in this section is that God knows our frame. He repeatedly called his failing people to be his witnesses. Remember how he had called them as witnesses in the court case, and then he did all the talking. He witnessed for himself. He constantly and always has called the failing people to be his witnesses. And then effectively what he said in these verses is, watch me while I work for you, because I know you don't have the strength to do this. And then be my witness of what you have seen me do for you. And that is the same call that we have today. Because we still fail him, but he still works for us and in us and through us. And we get to declare and be a witness of what he has done for us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this text. I thank you for the comfort that you have always given your people. And the fact that your promises are guaranteed. That you alone are God. And that your word is sure. I thank you that you have a plan that you have been constantly unfolding throughout history and that every part of your plan has come true and that we can be certain that the rest of your plan will come true as well. And I pray that even in our failing, that we will acknowledge our need for you and that we will humbly be witnesses of what you have been able to do through us and for us. I pray all this in your name. Amen.